Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, here with Paul Prescott, and today, very special guest, Maximilian Alvarez. Yes, you know him from The Real News Network and from Working People Podcast. Max, we're really happy to have you. You've already got fans in the live chat. How's it going? Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for having me. Big fan. Love everything that you guys do. Uh, Love this show. To everyone watching, if you're not already, subscribe, support this great show. And yeah, if you got some change left over, hit us up at the real news. But I'm doing, I'm doing good. How about you guys? Pretty good, pretty good. Um, you know, you're you're here doing our work for us, telling people to like and subscribe. Right. Everybody, listen to Max. Obviously, <laughs> this is the uh, final labor coup d'état at Jackman. So from now on, this is all we talk about is labor. It's finally happened. Yeah, if you guys haven't figured it out, this is a like 100% labor episode. So if that is not your thing. Um, tune out now no just kidding definitely keep watching we'll make it your thing we'll show you we'll why. Make it your thing. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of which max i wanted to ask you before we kick off just a few questions about your podcast working people um because i i was trying to like describe it to a friend the other day and i was like it's sort of like a modern day update of studs turkles working uh so could you talk a little bit about your podcast like i'm, I'm sure lots of people who are watching are already familiar with the kind of uh, premise of the podcast and the types of people that you interview uh but actually two questions for you First of all, what got you interested in labor and the labor movement? And then following from that, what made you decide to start working people? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll, I'll give the, the shorter version. <laughs> but, um, you know, to be honest, I, I didn't think about labor uh, the way that I do now until much later in life. You know, I've told this story many times on the show and, and in other interviews that, you know, I was raised uh, in a very Catholic, very conservative household in Southern California. Uh, I was a first generation family. And, you know, we were on the side of the family that was more conservative, which I later realized was the side of the family that was almost exclusively non-union workers, right? Not that that was the only determinant of our family's politics, but I did realize later on in life that, the predominantly Latino side that had more union jobs tended to be more Democrat and the white side tended to be more Republican and we were somewhere in the middle. But I was very much raised, um, you know, in Orange County, California, the heart of the Reagan revolution, right? That there was just a an anti-union kind of culture that just saturated everything. And you couple that with, you know, my folks having Fox News on all of the time, Living in Southern California, one of the the primary kind of like ideological uh, vehicles for conservatism is talk radio because you're in the car half of the damn time. And so my folks listen to like Larry Elder, Dennis Prager, Rush Limbaugh, um, Dr. Laura uh, Schlesinger. Um, So I got a lot of that ideological air conditioning growing up and I wholeheartedly believed in and bought into Right. A lot of those kind of dreams of American meritocracy. Right. Especially believing that, you know, I needed to make my own way that, you know, unions and the labor movement had once served an important function to get us to the point that we were at now. But now the playing field had been leveled and, you know, working people like myself and my family would go as far as our as our labor would take us. Right. As our commitment would take us. Right. 
that all came crashing down in the uh, 2008 financial recession. Right? I think that that period was really my radicalization period. Um, you know, my, my family lost everything in the recession, uh, including the house that, that my siblings and I grew up in. And that was incredibly tough. It was really traumatic, I think, for all of us, especially for my parents, you know, who had really felt, I believe, that they had fought for and achieved some semblance of the American dream. And then like that, it all went away, you know, in in the very first episode of Working People, which I recorded with my dad in order to talk to him about losing the house, about voting for Donald Trump, about becoming a citizen, you know, in 1980 and voting for Reagan, about growing up dirt poor in Tijuana, right? We, I wanted to give him a platform to kind of talk through these things because he really didn't have, you know, a lot of the emotional tools to work through this himself. Um, and, and he really opened up in a way that, that he never had to me before. And I still, you know, credit that conversation <clears throat> with really, you know, helping our family begin to heal after everything that we had been through. Um, but my dad describes in that episode, you know, that that going through that recession and trying to keep the house, trying to keep our family afloat, he said it was like trying to hold water in your hands and suddenly it was just gone. It was all gone. And so I believe like um, uh, David Foster Wallace, I think once said in a, in a uh, speech that it, it felt like my family had had and lost some infinite thing that it could never get back. And, you know, it was in that same period that, you know, like I, like many others, got spat out of college into the recession. I applied for, you know, hundreds of jobs. And ultimately, uh, I think in like 2010, 2011, the only ones I could find were working as a temp in warehouses and factories in Southern California. Um, I saw, you know, and experienced a lot of the exploitation there. I was working alongside a lot of ex-convicts and, and, you know, undocumented folks, and we just got to talking more. And so that's where I kind of really started to break out of that um, conservative mindset that I'd been raised with, that mindset that had taught me to believe that my future was entirely of my own making and that the kind of systems that I was embedded within the world that I was a part of, you know, like didn't determine who I was, right? I realized that it was much more complicated, that people who were poor, people who were suffering, people who struggled to keep a roof over their heads weren't bad people, that they weren't always there because of bad decisions they had made, right? You know, and I saw that first with my family and I saw it more with my coworkers. I felt it in myself, and so, you know, that was really the process for me of beginning to see beyond my own head and to really kind of think about the larger injustice of a system that had wiped the collective wealth of so many millions of people and families off the table while bailing out the big banks and corporations that had brought, you know, our economy to its knees. That was really, I think, like the the moment for me where I realized that um, something was was deeply wrong here, and I saw it in in my family as well. You know, uh, uh, last thing I'll say about why I started the show, right, is because in that period, that same period where we had lost the house, where we were struggling, you know, to keep our heads afloat, I noticed that my dad, uh, who was driving Uber at the time, just to kind of pay bills. You know, he was getting into conversations with folks that he was driving who were his age, 
folks who were also immigrants like him, folks who had lost their house like we had, folks who were being driven to their second or third job, even though they were in their 50s or their 60s. And that was really powerful for me because I realized that no matter how many times our family would try to tell my mom and my dad that a global recession wasn't entirely their fault, uh, that would never really sink in. But it was only until they started talking to other working people um, and realizing that the, the scope of the devastation of the recession, um, that they started to kind of realize that uh, it wasn't just us, it wasn't just them, and that more people who didn't deserve the pain that they were going through were experiencing what we were experiencing. And I realized, you know, that there was something really important there uh, in working people opening up to one another and sharing their stories with one another in being vulnerable and honest, um, you know, about our lives and our dreams and our struggles that open pathways for us to heal that, that gave us the ability to cope with the inhumanity of this brutal economic and political system. And that ultimately kind of, gave us the tools to sort of break that that dehumanizing, alienated crust that settles on all of us in this capitalist hellhole, right? Where we are taught to see each other not as fellow human beings with complex lives and histories and thoughts and emotions, but we tend to, we're, we're trained to see each other just as, you know, name tags, right? Just as, you know, avatars on, on social media, not as flesh and blood human beings, that is the system, you know, that doing what it does best, right, which is alienate ourselves, us from ourselves and from one another. But when you sit down, you listen to someone, you look them in the face, right, you recognize and honor um, their humanity, you, that crust begins to break off. You begin to feel, right, that really natural inherent bond that we all have with one another that makes us realize that there's more to life than living like this and that, you know, we as human beings um, deserve to live with more dignity and comfort and respect than what we are allowed to live with in this brutal system. So I wanted to make working people a place where I could talk to workers about these kinds of things, where we could talk about just all the messy realities of their lives um, without judgment, right, with, with just real open, honest listening, um, and that people listening could connect with other workers in industries that they knew nothing about, right? You know, people living in parts of the world and parts of the country that they knew nothing about and realizing that actually you have a lot more in common with, you know, your fellow workers than you think. Um, and hopefully if we listen to one another that way, we can build the kind of robust solidarity we need to, you know, make the movement to build the world that we deserve. The long really way to bring your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was great. That was really well said. And I just want to add on to that. Something that I really appreciate about both Working People and the Real News Network is um, how both of those outlets foreground working class voices in a way that I don't think really any other media outlet does. I mean, you know, here on Jacobin even, or lots with lots of left-leaning outlets, I think that we try to do that. But oftentimes, you know, we're having on labor leaders, or we're having on like academics, or, or you know, sociologists, all of whom I think have very valuable perspectives to add. But it's also really interesting, as you were saying, to get kind of the rawness and the messiness of uh, actual workers. 
I agree. And I guess, you know, one thing that I would that I would really stress, right, is that um, this is why, you know, we need to be doing what we're doing right now, which makes me really excited, which is collaborate, bring our audiences in conversation with one another, right? Because this is a collective struggle. Like one of the things that I'm constantly harping on at The Real News, right, is like, you know, all of us in independent media, right? Jacobin, take Jacobin, right? I remember I was part of that same wave where left independent media, like it's an uncomfortable thing to realize, but we all got this massive lift with Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. I was a columnist at The Baffler at that time. And The Baffler, um, you know, Jacobin, Current Affairs, in these times, we all got this big boost um, in that time. But then I think that um, as things wore on, we started succumbing to the built-in incentive structures of the media ecology that we're a part of, which trains us to be capitalists, right? What trains us to think like capitalists and see other outlets, even if we are all on the same side and pushing for the same things, we see one another as competitors in this zero-sum game for followers, for subscriptions, uh, for for eyeballs, right? And the, the bare fact is, is that when we're talking about um, the playing field that includes corporate media and well-funded right-wing media, we're all getting our butts kicked, right? And, and so the stakes are incredibly high and we need to stop kind of thinking like capitalists who are in competition with one another, start working together. And so folks can have a kind of robust media diet that includes the brilliant and vital conversations that you guys have on this show. Um, then they can, they can, you know, throw on a side of like a working people interview and so on and so forth. And they can feel more collectively empowered by all the media that they consume to be better uh, democratic actors in the world. I don't, I, that's a highfalutin kind of like way of approaching, but I genuinely think that it's the way that we all have to approach this. And I, and I think that competition you mentioned plays out also in the topics that get covered or not covered on left media. Because I think the reality is, as I'm realizing more and more, is that labor uh, and the struggles of working people just are not as sexy as like culture war issues. And, you know, even if the left has the right take on a culture war issue, I think a lot of media outlets would rather cover that. It gets more clicks. And a part of it has to do with where we're at in the society. Like so few people, even who identify as leftists, know about unions or have a family member or friend that are in them. So I think it's just unfamiliar territory. Um, but yeah, so I think we have to kind of stay the course in terms of making sure we're covering labor as much as we're covering other, other topics, especially, you know, if you're a left outlet, that should be central to what you're talking about. Well, and like, and, and, make, and like you said, making it tangible, making it practical, I guess to hook this back to my long-winded spiel about my origin story, right? I had no idea what a union was or, what, or how it worked. All I knew was what Fox News kind of told me about it. All I knew was like the kind of standard tropes about, you know, old bad teachers who could never be fired because the union wouldn't allow it, right? And that hurt me as a student. It hurt my community, yada, yada, yada. I, like, again, that was because of the media ecosystem in the days before the internet. It was Fox News. It was right-wing radio just berating me with that crap. And it was also pop culture, right, that, that really didn't give a really robust uh, understanding to people like me of the value of organized labor, the labor movement. And so, you know, if I had had something like the Jacobin show when I was a, a dumbass conservative uh, high schooler, 
right? Uh, you know, like the, the the great segments that you've been doing, you know, recently, like what is, you know, uh, <laughs> what is a trade school, right? What do they do, right? You know, like th- these are just basic questions that I think a lot of us are probably afraid to ask at this point. But when you have, you know, uh, folks like, like you and Jen laying this out for people week after week, it really does have a, a, a huge effect in in kind of counteracting what I think are decades of deliberate cultural amnesia and and knowledgelessness about organized labor. And so that's that's kind of, again, the, the stakes that uh, of what we do. So on the subject of cultural amnesia, uh, you, Max, had actually mentioned to us before the show when we were all talking that uh, it's it's a kind of uh, dark uh, and special 40th anniversary. Uh, you, perhaps your uh, Orange County teen self would uh, <laughs> be, be more interested in Reagan, but what you're going to talk to us about something that I think is really important. What What do you have? Well, I apologize to to viewers because you're about to hear me talk a whole lot more. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, uh, so I'm just super excited. I don't know if I said this enough, but I'm going to say it again. I'm super excited that we're doing this collaboration uh, and the kind of different topics that the three of us are covering and thinking about the ways that they intersect with one another. And so when we were discussing this, as you said, Jim, like the the kind of thing that that I proposed was you know, it's been 40 years since Reagan broke the PATCO strike in 1981. And again, this was something that I really didn't know much about growing up. It was something I learned about like in my late 20s. And I was, it made me, it made me really retroactively feel quite weird about my own upbringing because Reagan was very much a venerated figure in our family. Um, I think my parents were kind of tongue in cheek about it, but we actually got Christmas presents from a website called rightwingstuff.com, including pictures of Reagan and Bush saying like, my heroes have always been cowboys, right? Stuff like that. So Reagan, you know, that, that mythology of Reagan, especially in Southern California was very palpable. Then the more that I learned about what he did, what the impacts of, of his governance were, the more gross I felt about it. And so I thought it would be worthwhile uh, in our, in our kind of three respective segments for me to kind of take a moment to, you know, walk listeners uh, and viewers through kind of what this moment in history was, what it meant. Uh, and then we can kind of talk about it because, as you said, it's been 40 years ago this month that this happened. So I'm not going to free ball it. I, I did write some stuff down. So let me let me kind of go through this and see what y'all think. So 40 years ago this month, the trajectory of the labor movement and American society changed forever. As the United States was entering another economic recession, Ronald Reagan, who had just been sworn into office in January, used the power of his office to break a strike by the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, or PATCO, firing 11,345 striking workers and permanently banning them from ever working for the federal government again. It's a story that lives in infamy, a truly dark day on the historical path that led us to where we are today. Or, depending on who you ask, it was the triumphant moment when the government helped the unchecked will of the market break through the barricades of one of the last bastions of civil society where working people still had the power to assert that their world, our world, should be organized around more than businesses' competitive quest for profit. 
The labor movement, imperfect as it was, was still the primary mechanism through which workers could collectively tell the rest of society in their own words what they wanted, what they needed, and what social progress should look like. Let's not forget that it was working people who said, we want civil rights and home ownership. We want to retire with dignity and have weekends off. And working people forced society to make those adjustments for a time. But now those gains have been taken back um, by the business class vultures who peck our lives and wallets clean. And the labor movement, imperfect as it was, was still the primary muscle that working people had and used to make sure that their wants and their needs weren't simply ignored like they so often have been for the past 40 years. For 40 years, as we have lost most of that muscle, as we have lost our seat at the societal bargaining table, the only mechanism that has been left for us to express our collective wants and needs is really the mechanism of electoral politics. So this has meant, first and foremost, that the vast working class of this country, which may have had in the labor movement the opportunity to determine and fight for its own wants and needs as a class, has been permanently splintered into three main groups, divided not by class uh, interests, but by political affiliation. And that's Democrats, Republicans, and the great mass of non-voters. What's worse The process of limiting working people's societal bargaining power to the ballot box has more or less confined our political imaginations and political engagement to the model of individuals asking management for help. As an ill-defined mass of individuals, the political managerial class is by no means beholden to our will, nor are they required or forced to address our wants and needs, and that is by design. I think the same rule applies to the other mechanism that in the 40-year wake of Reagan breaking the PATCO strike has been provided by the powers that be to register and respond in some way to our wants and needs. That other mechanism is the mechanism of consumerism, the quote-unquote power of the purse. 40 years after PATCO, the challenge for most of us is not only living in a world where our mechanisms for having a say in how society works have been reduced to this, but living in a world where the majority of us have forgotten that it was ever otherwise. And here comes the amnesia part. So by now, I think that many of us know the story, Um, but I'm going to give a SparkNotes version here. And there are a lot of important details that I'm paving over. So please don't yell at me in the, in the comments instead, share resources for folks who are watching. Um, But if you want to know more about this, I would highly encourage you all to read up on it. And of course, you got to start with Joseph McCartan, uh, who wrote what is pretty much kind of the definitive book on the subject. And that book is called Collision Course, Ronald Reagan, the Air Traffic Controllers and the Strike that Changed America. So in absence of McCartan's book, here's what I'll say. PATCO was originally formed in 1968, and the Union Drive was partially the result of a high-profile mid-air plane crash that happened in New York in 1960 which made air traffic controllers realize they needed more robust and formalized supervision over the work that they did. Since air traffic controllers were employees of the federal government, though, and this would be the crux of Reagan's drastic actions against Petco, they were prohibited by law from striking, let alone negotiating over hours and wages. 
But the union had found creative ways to act collectively and effectively force the government to negotiate with them, including, you know, they did things like coordinated sick outs and slowdowns. And I mean, those actions did not always go the way that the union wanted. Um, but for a number of reasons that I won't, you know, go into here, um, the net result in the decade leading up to the 1981 strike was that the union and its members were feeling emboldened in their bargaining position. And they were not fans of their dealings with the Federal Aviation Administration under Democratic President Jimmy Carter. And so there are two crucial details to pull out here before I get to the actual strike. First, it should be understood that Petco and its membership operated primarily as a trade association or something like a guild, relying more than anything on the irreplaceability of its skilled workers. Many air traffic controllers had gotten their training in the military. Many had been involved in the Vietnam War, and thus some had kind of a cultural conservatism with them, um, but that's a, a topic for another time. So one of the most constant refrains from workers during the strike in 1981 was that there was no way in hell the government could effectively and safely replace all the skilled workers who went on strike and were subsequently fired. And this was partially true, but, you know, really a combination of, a, of really bad luck, right? I mean, a combination of managers and scabs who filled in for striking workers along with the recession that I mentioned earlier, which reduced demand and the number of flights in the air, meant that the system was able to hold during the PATCO strike. This attitude by PATCO also meant that the union did not have a really robust support from the rest of the labor movement when it defied the government. Um, they did get nominal support from like the machinists, and there was talk of machinists refusing to cross the picket line, but that ultimately didn't materialize into any concerted action. Um, and the pilots union, for example, was openly antagonistic towards the strike uh, because pilots were feeling resentful that the resulting reduction of flights would lead to layoffs among their ranks. So the second uh, kind of detail to pull out here, uh, it's a well-known detail, but one that can't be repeated often enough. PATCO was one of the few unions to endorse Reagan's presidential run in 1980. You know, having grown exhausted with the Carter administration, like I said, and hoping that Reagan's own past as a union president of the Screen Actors Guild, let's not forget, Reagan was president of SAG twice, um, you know, that coupled with the PATCO endorsement, they hoped that that would make Reagan more of an ally in the upcoming negotiations. Um, and so PATCO bucked the rest of the labor movement and temporarily put themselves on the right-hand side of the man who would eventually crush them into unbeing. So in February of 1981, PATCO began negotiating a new contract with the Federal Aviation Administration. At the time, you know, the lion's share of media attention, and you can go on YouTube and look at a lot of the media coverage, but a lot of that media attention was focused on PATCO's ambitious demands for dramatic increases in pay and benefits, including a $10,000 across-the-board pay increase um, for their members, together with a 10% raise in the contract's second year. But actually, the biggest sticking point for the union was one regarding working conditions. Averaging more hours on the job and more overtime than their European counterparts, PATCO was demanding a 32-hour work week four days a week, eight hours a day, along with upgrades in equipment. 
And in June of 1981, the FAA offered the union a contract that included an 11.4% wage increase over three years. But the contract did not offer provisions for reduced hours, and Petco's membership ultimately rejected it. And on August 3rd, 1981, 13,000 workers walked off the job, which is a really staggering number. On that same morning, Reagan gave his infamous ultimatum to the strikers in the Rose Garden. And so um, we actually pulled that clip from that for us to watch here. This morning at 7 a.m., the union representing those who man America's air traffic control facilities called a strike. This was the culmination of seven months of negotiations between the Federal Aviation Administration and the union. At one point in these negotiations, agreement was reached and signed by both sides, granting a $40 million increase in salaries and benefits. This is twice what other government employees can expect. It was granted in recognition of the difficulties inherent in the work these people perform. Now, however, the union demands are 17 times what had been agreed to, $681 million. This would impose a tax burden on their fellow citizens, which is unacceptable. I would like to thank the supervisors and controllers who are on the job today helping to get the nation's air system operating safely. In the New York area, for example, four supervisors were scheduled to report for work and 17 additionally volunteered. At National Airport, a traffic controller told a news person he had resigned from the union and reported to work because, quote, how can I ask my kids to obey the law if I don't? End quote. This is a great tribute to America. Let me make one thing plain. I respect the right of workers in the private sector to strike. Indeed, as president of my own union, I led the first strike ever called by that union. I guess I'm maybe the first one to ever hold this office who is a lifetime member of an AFL-CIO union. But we cannot compare labor management relations in the private sector with government. Government cannot close down the assembly line. It has to provide without interruption the protective services which are government's reason for being. It was in recognition of this that the Congress passed a law forbidding strikes by government employees against the public safety. Let me read the solemn oath taken by each of these employees in a sworn affidavit when they accepted their jobs. I am not participating in any strike against the government of the United States or any agency thereof, and I will not so participate while an employee of the government of the United States or any agency thereof. It is for this reason that I must tell those who fail to report for duty that this morning, they are in violation of the law, and if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. End of statement. All right. So I figure we can really like dissect that when we're all kind of chatting again. Um, and I apologize to everyone whose blood is now boiling, but I thought it was important that we watch that statement in full because there are a lot of important little details in there to unpack. But let me let me get through the rest of this uh, kind of script here so that we can we can kind of have a discussion about this. So on August 5th, Reagan made good on his threat and fired the 11,345 striking air traffic controllers who did not return to work. But it got even worse. 
In a truly vindictive act, uh, Reagan also banned these workers for life from working for the federal government. Clinton would later rescind that, but only, you know, a small percentage of those workers ever went back to working for the federal government. But also, PATCO was decertified as a union in October later that year. It was crushed. Now, you know, as some commentators have pointed out, there are a number of ironies here. Uh, First, even though PATCO members were painted as greedy and ungrateful for demanding what was seen as an untenable amount of money from the federal government to cover those increases in wages and benefits, the amalgamated costs of firing over 11,000 workers and hiring and training new controllers in the years afterwards certainly exceeded that original price tag. And secondly, the union that would later fill the void left by PATCO specifically the National Air Traffic Controllers Association, or NATCA, would eventually secure a lot of the gains that PATCO strikers were demanding in the first place. But the lasting damage was done, and the ripple effects of this momentous event went far beyond this one strike and this one group of workers. But in the spirit of everything we were talking about at the beginning of the show, in the spirit of of my show, Working People, I think it's important to remember, first and foremost, the tremendous pain that Reagan breaking the PATCO strike, inflicted on air traffic controllers and their families. And we have a clip of that. For striking air traffic controller Gary Lohr and his wife Chris, this past week has not been an easy one. I stopped reading the newspapers because they bring you down and put you in such a bad mood and depressed. You really feel like they are breaking you, but they're not. We're strong. I guess the thing that bothers me most is that people think that we're out for a lot of money, which just simply isn't the case. Eight out of every ten air traffic controllers in this country have said we're not going to go back to work. And there has to be a reason for that because we're reasonable people just like everybody else. And I would I would hope that the president would realize that, but I don't think he has. So the human cost of Reagan breaking the PECO strike was enormous, right? Workers like this one, families like these were heartbroken, beaten, battered. Um, there were suicides after this. A lot of people never really regained their economic foothold, right? That The kind of immediate casualties of this and the human pain that filled, you know, that that space was immense. But also Reagan's breaking of the Patco strike was a signal to employees everywhere that it was officially open season on the labor movement. So here's a particularly infamous quote from Donald J. Devine, Reagan's director of the U.S. Office of Personal Management that some of you have probably heard before. But uh, Devine says, quote, when the president said no, American business leaders were given a lesson in managerial leadership that they could not and did not ignore. Many private sector executives have told me that they were able to cut the fat from their organizations and adopt more competitive work practices because of what the government did in those days. I would not be surprised if these unseen effects um, of this private sector shakeout under the inspiration of the president were as profound in influencing the recovery that occurred as the formal economic and fiscal programs, end quote. And he wasn't wrong. You know, Reagan stated that he supported the right of private sector unions to strike and that the real issue with the PATCO strike was that it was an illegal act by federal employees who did not have that right. But the private sector, already sharpening its knives, heard what it needed to hear. In the years that followed, replacing striking workers became a commonplace practice in the private sector. 
Union membership declined to an all-time low. The share of profits between executives and employees went in completely opposite directions from this moment in history on, even as workers in the United States became more productive than ever and the cost of living rose. The breaking of the PATCO strike was an event that played an outsized role in shaping the world that we have grown up in, a world in which a once strong labor movement had its back broken, leaving working people to be systematically stripped year after year of their individual will to exercise their rights in the workplace and their collective ability to protect themselves from being crushed into subservience by the profit-seeking prerogatives of the business class, let alone their ability to make their own needs a priority in the arrangement of society. I guess I would put it like this in closing, right? A barrier had once existed, right, between the kingdom of workers and the kingdoms of government and business. Each had fortifications in their favor that protected them against the others, and that gave them power to exert their needs onto the list of society's priorities. And again, let's not forget that it was the government, like the orc battering ram of capitalism, that smashed the wall protecting workers. What coincided with that loss of worker power was a loss of our ability to have a say in how society worked and who was choosing what the future would look like. Over the span of three generations, I'd say, we collectively and often willingly gave into this social contract where we get to just pay rent in the world that the elite and ruling class want to make. A world where profit, not life or freedom, is the thing that must be protected at all costs and that government is used to protect. And we don't have to, you know, we don't have to, <clears throat> we don't get to have any real say in how things work. And that's, that's why, even though it can feel like we all hate each other all the time, I think we still all acknowledge that politicians aren't ever actually going to listen to any of us, and most of us feel like we don't have the power to do shit at work. In return, right, this social contract says that we get to enjoy the consumer comforts that this system creates for us. But even that has become more twisted in our lifetimes, right? Now, even those comforts that we get out of this deal and practically everything else that we do or enjoy in our lives, now all of that is getting something out of us, right? Practically everything we say and everywhere we go is being tracked, every purchase recorded, everything is a goddamn computer in it and is sucking and selling data off of us, off of us. So I guess what I'm saying is that when Reagan broke the strike, it did a lot more than just break the back of the labor movement and break the lives of the workers involved. And it did more than rip almost all power from working people to make history. It also convinced us that this was the way it should be and the only way it was going to be. The dream of moving towards a future of our making and the dream of making history in our own image was replaced by the reality of living in a dream world fashioned by corporations and elite institutions that are perpetually out of reach. In the most sinister of ways, I think the legacy of PATCO is that the political and economic uh, managerial class has made us all consumers of our own history. End of speech. Very well said. Um, I think there can really be no overstating how important that strike was for you know re remaking the society we live in. And I think, we you know, when we think about neoliberalism, 
I think there was a lot of trends you could see starting in the 1970s, kind of more at the structural economic level, like, you know, higher interest rates. But I think it really took a subjective political factor to really inaugurate neoliberalism. And I think, you know, with Margaret Thatcher, her first move was, if I can take on the miners and teach them a lesson, that's going to uh, set the stage. I think this was the moment um, for Reagan. And it's kind of interesting thinking about as federal workers, you know, they, they saw an opportunity there because, you know, 1970, not that too long before, postal workers went on a wildcat strike, which was illegal. But Nixon didn't feel, you know, he had the ability to just fire them like Reagan did. And maybe that's because the social movements were a lot stronger than, um, you know, what was in the air at that time. Maybe it was a riskier move. Um, but I think there's just, just looking at those, that 11-year span kind of shows the difference in the context where, the ruling class felt they could make such a bold move in 1981, but not in 1970. I just want to quickly add on to that, um, you know, going off Margaret Thatcher, we have come to think of both Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan as kind of the avatars of neoliberalism, Thatcher in the UK, and of course, Reagan here in the US. And so I think that the breaking of the PATCO strike is such a defining moment because, as Paul alluded to and has pointed out before on this show, uh, so much of when people think about neoliberalism, I think a lot of what comes to mind immediately is stuff like privatization, austerity, uh, the retrenchment of the welfare state. And that's all true. And all of those things characterize neoliberalism. But what is also characteristic of neoliberalism is just complete and ruthless and relentless assault on labor. And I think that Reagan, having won the endorsement of PATCO and then just completely turning around and crushing the union is uh, uh, perfectly symbolic of that moment. Um, I, I guess I would also want to ask you guys if you think that there is anything, I don't want to say positive, but what can we learn from the PATCO strike or the breaking of the PATCO strike that uh, helps us now thinking about labor moving forward? Because hmm. it's depressing, obviously. Right. <laughs> um, but. Let's see, Paul, I, I, I'm taking a breather, so I'm, I'm right. throwing you in. I mean. <laughs> Hmm, how can I make this positive? Um, I mean, I think on the one hand, uh, just like don't don't ever really underestimate the state's willingness and ability to break labor that way. I mean, I think, and again, I think for labor still in the 1980s, there's still, first of all, union density was still pretty high. You know, I think there was still a sense of like, yes, labor is part of the society. It's not going anywhere. So I think people at that time just thought, there's no way he's actually going to do this. Um, and he showed that clearly he is. And maybe, I guess, in our time, we don't have a hard, as hard a time believing that they will do things like that. Um, but I think it also just shows, like, I mean, the state's role in um, cr creating neoliberalism. You know, it's not just that it's, like, corporate actors doing this. Like, the state is actively playing a role. And it really is just a lesson of, like, I mean, we should pay attention to what our enemies are threatened by. And it's like, you know, clearly they saw that if we're going to get this done. Unions are the biggest force standing in our way. Um, and this is maybe a lazy analogy, but it's like, what did the Nazis do immediately? They knew labor and the communist party. That's what we've got to get rid of next. And really that should just show us why we should value the labor movement. Cause it really is that force that uh, really is the force that we, we have to really resist the ruling class. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think that, that, you know, you hit the nail on the head, both of you, right? That like the term neoliberalism gets thrown around a lot. 
And it can often to the point where it becomes so opaque and and chock full of meaning that it means very little to people when we say it. But I think that something like the Patco strike um, and the kind of fallout of it gives a really clear cut example of what neoliberalism is and what it means. Right. Because, you know, one of my uh, the points that I'm kind of constantly making to the point that if anyone who watches the real news or working people hears me talking now, they're going to roll their eyes because they know I've said this a bunch. But what I constantly stress to people is that one of the greatest tricks that Reagan and the capitalist class ever pulled was convincing us that government and market are separate from one another, right? Reagan famously said, uh, government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. But what he was doing here with Petco, what he did with his uh, you know, entire economic plan was not get rid of government. He transferred the role of government to the market. And he used the levers and mechanisms of the federal government to make that transition happen, right? Like I said, it was, it was the government uh, whether that be Reagan with the the labor movement, whether that be Clinton with uh, you know free trade and and um, gutting welfare, right? They mm-hmm. used gov- the 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 tools of government to smash what were previously kind of structures in civil society that gave working people power to assert their wants and their needs. Instead, what this did, what 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 the reason why they needed to, you know, break the back of the labor movement and Alan Greenspan, um, you know, the famous ghoul, uh, Alan Greenspan, um, was it, I forget how long he was, was chair of the federal reserve. I mean, 2004, he gave this kind of infamous speech, right. Where he credited Reagan and the breaking of the Patco strike for creating the necessary quote unquote flexibility in the market that would allow capitalism to kind of attain the new heights that it had always reached for. Right. And this is a perfect example of how you can, you can pave over just a a universe of inhumanity in kind of like technocratic language. What Greenspan meant by flexibility um, building off what Paul was just saying is to kind of make us working people powerless um, as actors in the world. Right. So that, you know, the market, and business could determine the shape of everything else, whether that is like, you know, profit seeking companies building a manufacturing plant in one town, then realizing that their labor costs could be cheaper overseas. So they close down, right? The flexibility means that unions don't have a say in that process. So when all the, those workers are left without a job and those families are left without a form of subsistence, the flexibility that Greenspan is talking about is this kind of economic magic that will spring up new industries and new job creators in that area to absorb those fired workers, laid off workers, so that we reach kind of that equilibrium of full employment, right? What it means is keeping all of us so close to the edge of oblivion um, that we don't have the power to get in the way of the profit-seeking prerogatives of the powers that be. We don't have a way to halt that machine. We just go where it tells us to go. We go where the jobs are created. We accept what employers are willing to give. Um, And this was what that breaking of the labor movement meant for the capitalist class, was making the vast amount of us, the great working class of this country and beyond, right? These kind of little pawns that could be moved around at will. And I love, I mean, I love that term the Reagan advisor said about, you know, cutting the fat from operations, aka, you know, living wages, healthcare, all all those sort of (laughs) things. All that useless stuff. Yeah, the fat. Um, and, you know, and, yeah. I, and I guess one more thing in terms of a lesson, I think 
you know, listening to Reagan's uh, speech at the press conference, you know, he framed it in terms of, you know, this is a tax increase on the average American. We just can't mm-hmm. accept. And I think just another lesson of like how increasingly necessary it is for unions to frame their fights in a way that's connected to the broader public. And we're in this dilemma where the smaller unions get, you know, the less easy it is for someone who's not in a union to relate to it or know about it. And this is where, you know, this concept of what's called bargaining for the common good is developed. And some unions have employed it very skillfully, like um, famously the Chicago teachers strike in 2012, more recently Los Angeles teachers strike, where they made it clear that like what we're fighting for is stuff that anyone, even if you're not in a union, will benefit from, you know, because that is the classic divide and conquer, especially in the in the public sector. That's what they always do. And they will keep doing this. Um, it's also possible in the private sector, you know, one of the last great national uh, private sector strikes was in 1997, the UPS strike, and they framed their slogan was part time America doesn't work, meaning, you know, we're against everyone becoming part time in this new economy. And that kind of resonated with the public in a way. So I think it's just another lesson that it's very important for unions to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think that that's one of um, kind of the if not the lesson, right, it's one of perhaps the hopeful signs, something that I've noticed myself in working people, something that I'm sure we've all noticed, right? The very, like, going back to what I was saying before, right, about my conservative upbringing, right? we're all children of the 90s, right? The idea that, like, an Amazon union drive would be an international news story, that it would have such overwhelming public support was unthinkable for most of my lifetime, right? And I think that, you know, that's that you, 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 kind of contrast that with the media coverage and the public kind of um, opposition to the PACO strike, right? There was a lot of that divide and conquer, like you were saying. There's a lot of people saying, well, they're being greedy. They're demanding too much. They're demanding more than what I even have, right? So even the very notion that the labor movement can lift the floor for working people was flipped around and seen as just certain buckets of workers greedily taking more than what the rest of us have. What I think has changed, right, especially after the recession, is that more and more of us have been pushed into this downward funnel, what Bernie Sanders famously called the race to the bottom, right? Where, you know, something like the the teacher's strikes of the past decade could gain that sort of popular support, both because of the organizing efforts of the people involved to build those connections with the community, to fuse those bonds with teachers, students, and so on and so forth, but also because all of us are getting screwed, right? And so many of us are looking around and, and when we see people fighting for, you know, to not work 12 hours a day, to, to have like some day with their family, right? To, to make more than poverty level wages, we can identify with that more. In the 90s, we didn't, right? Because we had this moment, this economic moment where it felt like we could attain that middle class life without the labor movement. And then 2007 quickly reminded us that this system was never going to allow such a thing. Right. Well said. Um, I think on that note, uh, because, you know, on the theme of kind of moving away from treating these fights as a zero-sum game, I want to fast forward and uh, look at what some organizing, some labor organizing in the future might look like. Uh, And we'll definitely be getting into more of this topic in a little bit. Uh, Paul has some comments as well. Um, But something that I want to focus on for the time being is care work. Uh, We've been hearing a lot about care work lately, uh, well, for a while, but especially lately during the pandemic. 
I think that uh, one of the many things that the ongoing pandemic obviously threw into sharp relief is how deeply dysfunctional our system of caregiving in the U.S. is. So as we know, overcrowded and understaffed nursing homes were very early sites of COVID outbreaks. They now account for over a third of all COVID deaths in the U.S. Tonight, nursing homes across the country scrambling to increase safety protocol. It started going south immediately, simply because of staffing shortages and a lack of protective equipment. Certified nursing assistants started contacting us for any type of advice or guidance, and the fear grew very quickly. Can we get masks? Should I go to work? Should I quit? How do I protect myself? Are we getting the truth? We started literally with a spreadsheet. No one else was tracking this at a national level at that point. We went to every state, we filed public records requests, asking to confirm the numbers of cases and deaths. With nursing homes, there's a level of complexity. We were sending out supplies, we were giving them testing guidance, but what we found a lot of times was that the staff didn't understand exactly how to use the protective equipment. Sometimes you would get things that didn't even resemble PPE. One of our members received condoms from FEMA as PPE. Frankly, nursing homes were treated less than hospitals. We were the stepchild, so to speak, of healthcare, and we didn't get the PPE first. We didn't get the information, the testing that was needed in any infection, pandemic or not. So in addition to that, as COVID cases surged and ICUs were stretched to capacity last year, nurses, doctors, and other healthcare professionals already beset by a nursing shortage even prior to the pandemic, faced high levels of burnout. For more than a decade, Joanna Engman loved bedside nursing. It was a true calling. I wanted to be at the bedside of the sick, the dying. But last year when the pandemic hit, the Colorado nurses' love of nursing was tested. And you're seeing someone who is scared and suffering, and you're not able to be present with them because you're so overworked. You either numb out or you are crying. In February, weary of a lack of PPE and grueling schedules, Joanna left bedside nursing. She's not alone. According to a recent Washington Post Kaiser Family Foundation poll, three in 10 healthcare workers have weighed leaving the profession, and six in 10 say the pandemic burned them out. In hard-hit New York, there was a 400% increase in nurses looking for new jobs. And a recent Yale School of Public Health survey finds a quarter of healthcare workers are showing signs of PTSD. Then, on top of that, of course, last year's school and daycare closures put many parents, particularly women, in the bind of navigating 24-7 childcare while simultaneously trying to work their jobs either remotely or in person. My husband and I have not had childcare since the pandemic started. We're now, I think, in day 110, but he's counting. All across America, working parents on the brink. It's causing me a lot of anxiety trying to figure out how I'm going to sustain it. Should I keep working or should I stop and be with my children? Because I just can't give them my full undivided attention that they deserve. The pandemic has shuttered schools, summer camps, sidelined virus-vulnerable grandparents. The result, some 18 million Americans have no one to care for their young kids. How tired are you? Pretty tired. 
This caregiving squeeze from all directions understandably prompted many progressives to renew a conversation on the value of caregiving, both waged and unwaged. How might this year have looked different had the work we do to care for one another, ourselves, and the world around us been valued at a premium, the New York Times asked in February. Likewise, in the spring, the Biden administration met with policy experts to discuss an infrastructure package, and according to the Washington Post, several prominent progressive economists advised the White House that, quote, federal investments in care work would do more to generate jobs and economic growth than physical infrastructure. Others argued that because care workers were disproportionately women of color, focusing on infrastructure indicated a kind of gender and racial bias. As the Post reported, quote, some people close to the White House say that they feel that the emphasis on major physical infrastructure investments reflects a dated nostalgia for a kind of white working class male worker. And over at the New York Times, author Gabriel Winant made a similar argument for prioritizing care work over manufacturing, writing, quote, while there are many projects that require blue collar work, there's little reason to treat such employment as an end in itself. In the long view, it seems not to be a category of labor for which our, our economy generates consistent demand. So is care work the future of work and by extension, the future of the labor movement? First of all, we have to be clear that, quote, care work is a large and often amorphous category that encompasses a huge variety of workers with vastly different work conditions and relationships to their employers. Some care workers, such as nurses, receive quite a lot of training and education and are highly unionized compared to the general workforce. On the other hand, other care workers, such as nannies, home care aides, and house cleaners, usually lack a traditional shop floor, let alone a stable employer, earn extremely low wages, often without benefits, and don't even have collective bargaining rights under federal labor law. It's this precarious and low-wage end of the care work spectrum that's growing the most rapidly. For instance, the economy is projected to add over 1 million new home care aid jobs by 2026. And again, these jobs are very often hazardous, poorly compensated, and disproportionately staffed by immigrants and women of color. So that's all to say that I agree that we need major federal investments in caregiving. Not only do we need programs like universal child care and universal elder care, but we need the government to ensure that these jobs are safe, well compensated, and unionized. What I reject, however, is the idea that we need to dismiss manufacturing or so-called blue-collar work in order to make care work jobs good. Something that we've criticized on the show before is occupational destiny, which is the belief that certain types of jobs are vanishing and never coming back, and that attempting to save these jobs is at best futile and at worst just a way of pandering to long-gone white male hard hats. In fact, one reason why the left absolutely has to concern itself with manufacturing and other blue-collar sectors in addition to care work is that they all function as different points of leverage against capital. Workers in manufacturing and industrial sectors are still capable of large disruptive strikes that can shut down a significant portion of the economy. Even though manufacturing jobs may not be as plentiful as they were 50 years ago, manufacturing still generated over $2 trillion in wealth in 2021. On the other hand, care work is crucial not simply because it creates profits for employers, though unfortunately under our current privatized healthcare system, it does, but also because it plays a central role in keeping society functioning. Now, ironically, our deep societal dependence on care work means that it's often much harder for care workers to strike. 
For example, when nurses at a for-profit hospital go on strike, it doesn't just hurt their employer's bottom line, it also has potential consequences for patients. This is why nurses actually pretty rarely undertake open-ended strikes and almost never simply walk out with no warning. Yesterday, I spoke briefly with Marlena Pellegrino, who's an RN at St. Vincent Hospital in Worcester, Massachusetts, about this very issue. Just for some background, over 700 nurses at St. Vincent have been on a very rare open-ended strike since March of this year. Take a look. They've been on the picket line since March 8th, and now the nurses at St. Vincent Hospital in Worcester have hit a milestone they never wanted to reach, 100 days on strike. It's just exhausting and, you know, frustrating, and we just want to come to ultimately a compromise. No one's out here because it's fun. We're out here for the patients. We're out here to stand up for people that can't stand up for themselves. The more than 700 nurses walked off the job for what they call unsafe staffing levels inside the hospital. St. Vincent, which is owned by Tenet Healthcare, a Dallas-based company announced last month they plan on hiring permanent replacements. Nurses have stepped up and said we're not going back in that building for the status quo um, where we remain caring for too many patients at one time, putting patients' lives in jeopardy every shift, every day. The nurses say tenant has refused to come back to the negotiating table despite calls from local and state leaders. And while the financial and emotional strain has been difficult for those on the picket line, they say that hardship has only made them stronger and more dedicated to their cause. We're from Central Mass. We're people from Worcester. Are you kidding me? Of course we're going to put up a fight. We're not going anywhere. We're out here for one day longer than they are. Since that news segment aired in June, the strike has continued, which now makes it the longest nurses strike in Massachusetts history. Last week, the union and tenant healthcare, which again is the corporation that owns St. Vincent Hospital, were close to reaching an agreement to end the strike. Unfortunately, at the last minute, Tenet scuttled the deal by refusing to guarantee that all striking nurses would be able to return to their previous positions, shifts, and hours. As Marlena Pellegrino put it, this was a punitive move against the striking nurses who had worked at the hospital for decades and, as she put it, quote, union busting at the highest level. According to a statement by the Nurses Union, to date, Tenet Healthcare has spent more than $100 million to force and prolong the strike while at the same time purposefully closing beds and services deliberately using the suffering of sick patients in Worcester as leverage against the striking nurses. So it's pretty clear at this point that it's Tenet, of course, and not the nurses who are putting patients at risk. After all, recall that the nurses went on strike in the first place because of unsafe staffing ratios, among other issues. At the same time, when I talked to Marlena, she made the point that nurses do not take strikes lightly precisely because they know how crucial their work is and because of their relationships with patients. As Marlena explained it, the St. Vincent Hospital strike was nearly three years in the making. She told me, quote, there are more nursing strikes now than there used to be, but a nursing strike is still a very unusual occurrence. We used every single avenue we could to avoid this strike. It's not like you can mobilize 700 nurses to go out on strike in a month. Trying to negotiate with this administration for close to three years now. We worked through Mm -hmm. a pandemic where they furloughed our nurses. They sent nurses home in the middle of shifts. We worked short-staffed, mm-hmm. not because we didn't have nurses, because they decided to keep those nurses home to save money. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's PPE. So it, it stemmed from there. Before the pandemic, we were negotiating about staffing. We filled out close to six or 700 unsafe staffing reports. 
We had multiple negotiation sessions, meetings. We had informational pickets. We did standouts. We wore buttons. We signed petitions. We had um, monthly meetings with our um, upper administration. We had one-on-one meetings with them. We took a no-confidence vote in our CEO and chief nursing officer. Um, I think it's going to be over a year ago now. Um, that Yeah, 14 months or maybe more. Um, all of these actions, we did this all while working, short-staffed, all while our patients were having more falls. We were caring for too many patients at one time. And not because this com- not because there weren't nurses to be had, not because this company didn't have any money, because they just said, no, no, you're not mm-hmm. having more staff. So Marlena continued, After three years of doing that, after all of that negotiating, when it came to this point, the union gave the hospital a 10-day notice. We don't just walk out of the building. We don't just walk out on our patients. It's a heart-wrenching decision to begin with. So all of this is to say that the very nature of care work means that nurses and other care workers are often up against constraints that industrial workers just don't have. Care workers are essential because they so often make the difference between life or death for the people who rely on them. We depend on them for our basic human needs. But the strength of the labor movement also depends on industries that are positioned to hit, to directly hit capital where it hurts the most. That is by eating into profits and imposing new costs on business. Here's how economist and former trade unionist Howard Botwinick described the relationship between labor and capital during the New Deal. He writes, Unions were only able to get these giant corporations to take them seriously at the bargaining table because thousands of militant workers had developed the ability to impose significant costs on those firms if they refused to take them seriously. Through the effective use of mass picket lines during strikes, sit-downs, slowdowns, boycotts, and other creative tactics, those militant CIO unions forced their employers to weigh the relative costs of allowing wages and conditions to gradually improve, versus the the alternative costs of fighting a prolonged battle with their unions. And, as in other competitive choices facing firms, employers were compelled to adopt the option that would hopefully minimize their overall costs. In effect, the CIO found a way to turn the forces of competition against their employers. In other words, if if the left is serious about rebuilding a labor movement that has the capacity to confront capital and win gains for all of the working class, we can't indulge in occupational destiny or inadvertently fetishize so-called pink-collar work simply because we don't want to seem like we're fetishizing blue-collar work. The The future of the labor movement is care work. It's also infrastructure, manufacturing, clean energy, transportation, communications, and more. The point of building a vibrant labor movement, after all, is not to predict what will happen to jobs in the future, but to at least try to have some hand in actively shaping that future ourselves. So really interesting with uh, nursing, because even before COVID, uh, they were actually one of the fastest unionizing sectors in the economy. And I think COVID is going to accelerate that. We're even seeing in the Philadelphia area, a bunch of new hospitals, nurses are trying to organize And actually, my first strike I was involved in as a student, my freshman year at Temple University was the Temple Hospital Nurses Strike. Um, And I remember what really actually kind of was profound for me was discovering that they were actually striking over uh, safe staffing ratios. And I think that Mm kind of goes back to what we were talking about, about for the common good. Um, And and they're actually very fighting very hard legislatively in states and federally to get safe staffing uh, mandates. But yeah, I, mean, I think kind of going along with what you were saying, part of just my a little bit annoyance of the way people are talking about care work is not that, of course, 
care work is not important or that it's a growing sector, but it's like almost pitched as is either or, or like somehow mm-hmm. it's like strangely more woke to be for care work than other things. Um, so yeah, I, it's almost like a weird di- dividing up the workforce kind of strategy that we shouldn't really be using. So it'll shock no one to to realize that the left can have a problem with walking and chewing gum at the same time. Right. And I, and I think that this is a perfect example, like as, as obvious, almost, almost ridiculously obvious as it may seem, it does always bear repeating when we get into these kind of back and forth debates. It's like, this is a big freaking country. Mm-hmm. Right? There, there, there are a lot of different workers there working in lots of different types of conditions, right? You know, it's it can't be either or. It's never either or. It was never ever going to be either or, right? We have to be able to take that kind of complexity for what it is, right, and think about the totality of it all. Um, and I think that yeah, the when we talk about care work as the as the future, I think that one really interesting facet of that conversation that that I'd be curious to hear you guys thoughts on is like because when we talk about manufacturing not coming back right it's it's kind of because we are always locked into this sort of capitalist paradigm of understanding the possibilities of history mm-hmm. right that that the only types of jobs that can be created and we'll stick with this country right the only types of jobs that can come about that can be created are ones that serve kind of the profit making needs of you know the business class what have you right and so you know the it, it can often there's so many ways that people can be gainfully employed there's so many ways that they can be paid for that work so many productive ends that we can like direct that labor towards that never even enter into our imagination you know like as a viable economic possibility for the working class to to live a, a comfortable dignified life it's only like you know what what options again does that flexible market kind of create for us um, you know, care work could be an example of how it's like, well, yeah, it, it's it's care. It's something human beings do for one another. Right. It is one of the most vital and essential yeah. kind of labor forms of labor that we have ever provided one another. It doesn't have to be kind of roped into this awful system of profit. But companies mm-hmm. like Tenant have, have certainly like made it so, mm-hmm. right? And they they show what that question of rigidity and flexibility means, right? Tenant is doing what Reagan did. It yeah. throws money, it throws money at the problem and it says, You ungrateful bastards didn't want to take that. And the workers are saying, because it's not just about the money, right? Like having a four to one nurse to patient ratio um is what Alan Greenspan would call a rigidity, yeah, right? right? It fact. is something it is a yeah, backstop. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And they don't want that. They want to just say, like, no, we need you to be, quote, unquote, flexible so that we can basically tell you how many patients you're going to have on any given day um, to serve to, to, like, work within this model that we have created, um, which is a you know horrifying and terrible way to run healthcare. Mm-hmm. I, I'd be curious to hear what you guys think about um, this aspect of striking, because when I was talking to Marlena, by the way, I just want to shout out the ongoing St. Vincent Hospital strike. Yeah. Uh, like, like I said, like they have been on strike for almost six months now. Um, when I, I, I the, the RN I talked to, Marlena, is incredible. Uh, I think she said that she's been working at St. Vincent for over two decades. Uh, a lot of the nurses have been at the hospital for decades. Um, and, you know, if I didn't make this clear during the segment, uh, they really are fighting not just for better working conditions for themselves, but obviously for their patients as well. And the reason why I um, wanted to incorporate Marlena's uh, 
uh, discussion of what it took to get to the point of striking is just to show how ruthless and callous this company tenant healthcare is and how the nurses, um, you know, I think that we often see management trying to weaponize uh, with nurses strikes or even teacher strikes, the fact that there are patients or students who, you know, can't be going to school or who aren't getting getting care. But something that, you know, Paul, you were saying that I think comes through really clearly in this particular strike is that these nurses were very, very open about how they were for foregrounding their patient's safety. And that's really what is on the line. I mean, and it's true. And actually, like, I'll just repeat, Tenet Healthcare is in a position to end the strike now, but they're being incredibly vindictive. So anyway, that's, uh, just wanted to throw that out there. But to go back to sort of the original question, um, I, I do really think that healthcare workers and, you know, in many cases, teachers are in a very tough position when it comes to striking. Um, and I think that, you know, that is uh, inherent to the nature of their work. Obviously, people don't go into nursing if they don't like to help people. Um, nurses and teachers build relationships with their patients and students. Like it's, 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 it's much more difficult, I think, for a nurse to walk off the job than it is for, you know, a Nabisco worker to decide that they're not going to package Oreos for the day. Shout out to Nando's segment from last weekend. <laughs> if you didn't see it, catch it. <laughs> but anyway, I, I guess I'm wondering what you guys make of that, because I, I think, I think, you know, although obviously, as we've seen with the St. Vincent strike, that can be overcome when conditions become bad enough. I do think that that is something that makes care work a much more difficult sector to, um, it's not that they're not militant, but it, it, it just makes it a much more difficult sector to directly confront capital, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, and I think what I might say is on the flip side of that, like I think it makes it more difficult initially to strike, but I think the flip side is that those strikes actually are so much more powerful politically mm -hmm. when done right, you know? And, and of course, this is like nothing to shoot down any strikes in the private sector, but like the, right. the Chicago teacher strike, the LAT were so powerful because they were, you know, involved the broader community. And I think, you know, for leftists, these are interesting fights because it's like a broader class-wide fight. So it's like, yes, the teachers on strike, but we're fighting for these services that the working class of this city depends on. And if you can mobilize on that basis, it's a broader class-wide fight than like, you know, like kind of you said, these particular workers at this factory are fighting. And yes, we know that, you know, improving their conditions will help improve everyone, but there's less of that direct connection. Um, so yeah, I think like it is, it's harder, but I think like when it happens in the public sector, it, it could be more powerful in, in, in certain ways. Um, and I think it's the kind of thing where the more these unions learn how to do it in the right way, you know, I think the better they'll get at it. But again, of course, it's not to say that we don't need strikes in the private sector. Of course, you know, right. of course we do. I I just feel like I've seen so many instances of strikes where um, management does successfully uh, rally the public against teachers or against yeah. you know nurses or, or or people in a position of you know care or who have students or or patients. Um, I I think that you're right that it does it does seem like since at least the Chicago teachers strike the uh, managers and like the right wing have been a little less use, uh, uh, effective at doing that. Like I noticed that there was a lot of that during the pandemic where you had a lot of Republicans and even Democrats, you know, saying things like the teachers are, uh, you know, like they're, they're basically locking your kids out of school because the teachers unions like don't want the teachers to go back to work. Uh, parents, you should be really mad about this. 
And maybe they were a little successful at kind of ginning up resentment. But I think for the most part, lots of parents uh, and, you know, thanks to, of course, the work done by teachers unions in kind of this bargaining for the common good uh, uh, model uh, and just, you know, community outreach, were able to deflect that narrative. Um, but Max, any any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, like, you know, I know that in the previous kind of segment, I talked about my own conservative upbringing. Um, this is all very familiar to me. I remember. You've heard the arguments. <laughs> I've heard it. I felt it. I thought it. I mean, I remember when um, some of my own teachers, uh, you know, went on strike. Um, it was a brief. It was a brief time. It was a limited sort of action at designated points in the day. But that was my immediate response. And, and it was this response that I heard so many other parents and, and students talking about is like you like Reagan uh, said in that kind of infamous speech in the Rose Garden about the Petco strike. He said, you took an oath, right? He, he invokes kind of the solemnness of like that oath to public service, mm-hmm. right? That means that, you know, if you go on strike, right? If you exercise, you know, labor's greatest power, you know, to, to get what it needs, then you are in fact kind of violating that oath. You were forsaking the people who are depending on that labor. And that was always a very effective way to turn me and so many others, you know, against uh, teachers like that. And I think that one thing that um, is, is really important and a potential sign, a hopeful sign, right, is, again, when I think about the decade and a half, um, or the two decades, I suppose, after Reagan, right, leading up to the the financial crash, right, it was in that period that the ruling classes, fictions and fables, like, had some sort of purchase for a lot of us, because the dream of attaining a middle class like life or even, you know, more than that. Reagan famously said that, you know, I want to live in America where people uh, can get rich and stay rich, right? You don't hear Republicans saying that crap anymore because they've all acknowledged that it's not going to happen, right? You know, the, they, they, the, the billionaire class has been set. It's their world. We're all just living in it. They don't even try to sell you on that belief that you're going to be one of the chosen few who makes it to that level of, of, of riches and opulence. That's gone out the window. But in the 90s and early 2000s, I think that that kind of economic, um, those economic conditions were such that people still felt that they could attain that life and that they could and should approach society through the lens of consumers, right? That it was always, what is, what are you done for me? Like, what can I get out of this? What are you supposed to give me as your job like uh, tells you to do? Again, I think that that the the, the ruling class can't help itself. Mm -hmm. The more that it breaks our ability to live um, in in a less than precarious way, the more that it takes all that stuff away from us, the less compelling it is for us to go about all the kind of interactions in our life thinking, well, I'm paying my hard-earned dollars for this or that cash and you owe this to me because most of us can't pay for it, right? Because most of us can't attain that, right? Or because most of us are working our asses off in one, two, or three jobs and we identify more with each other as workers than as consumers. So if you don't have that possibility of attaining that sort of comfortable existence in an economy that is moderately workable for a a vast amount of people, that sort of capitalist fiction really breaks down. And where we can really seize on that is kind of build bonds of solidarity among us. Well said. And um, I think this is kind of a perfect segue. It's almost like we've planned this uh, ahead of time, you know, (laughs) almost like that. 
Um, Almost. But yeah, I mean, so speaking of uh, manufacturing, that's kind of what I, I want to cover. We were joking before the show that Max was like the ghost of labor past. Uh, Jen is the ghost of labor present, and I'm the ghost of labor future. But um, let's talk about uh, manufacturing employment. And I think this is something that dominates political discourse today, whether from the left um, with liberals or the right wing. And this is the apparent disappearance of the industrial working class. The story goes that we just don't make things in this country anymore. Most of our manufacturing jobs have been outsourced overseas. We are a service economy now. The industrial working class and their unions are part of the old 20th century. And different political currents draw different conclusions from this same starting point. So the right wing uses it to blame immigrants for taking our jobs. Liberals use it to paper over class contradictions in our society and lecture us that we need to embrace this new world and learn to code and happily jump from one unpaid internship to the next. But for the left, this conception of the economy today causes disorientation and despair. The working class is supposed to be the agent of change. If they don't exist in the way that we thought, what do we do now? So some on the left latch on to new social forces. So in the 1960s, the new left put its faith in the student, the unemployed lumpen proletariat, the anti-colonial guerrilla fighter in different parts of the world. Today, we come up with new categories like the precariat and the gig worker, or put our faith in a new nonprofit that this time we swear is really different this time. But I think we're getting it wrong. The industrial working class hasn't disappeared. It's just been transformed. In some ways, it labors in conditions very different from a few decades ago that have been transformed by neoliberalism. But in other ways, industrial work today is the same as it usually is under capitalism. More importantly, I believe there's a new industrial workforce emerging before our very eyes with huge potential economic leverage. But let me first talk about the ways work has not changed much, starting with precarity. According to many commentators, traditional jobs are mostly or becoming a thing of the past. Everyone is cobbling together multiple part-time jobs, they're independent contractors, they have short-term contracts, etc. And while it's absolutely true that many people have trouble finding stable jobs, um, the data shows that 85% of Americans still work in traditional jobs. It's just that the working conditions and pay at these jobs have become much worse. Even job tenure, the amount of time someone stays at a job, has remained roughly the same since the 1970s and 1980s. If you look at this graph from um, labor journalist Ken Moody in a, in a uh, piece in Catalyst titled The New Terrain of Class Conflict, from 2005 to 2015, the rate of precarious employment has remained steady. The sad reality is that work under capitalism has always been precarious, even during the post-World War II golden age of capitalism. It's not that there is a new type of employment all of a sudden taking over. It's that the existing jobs are becoming worse and worse. And let's look at manufacturing. The truth is we still do make things in this country. Manufacturing output has actually been steadily increasing. We just do it by squeezing a lot more work out of fewer workers. So what has changed in the industrial working class? And to be sure, offshoring of jobs is a real phenomenon and has been responsible for the loss of millions of manufacturing jobs. But the losses in those jobs were partly offset by new job growth related to the reorganizing of production, mainly in logistics. And logistics workers are the new core of the U.S. industrial working class. And by logistics, we mean the movement of goods and products from one place to another. Logistics has become critically important to the way our economy functions. While logistics workers may not actually produce a product, 
they are critical to the realization of surplus value or profit for capitalists. If the parts of a good aren't moved along the production process or the product isn't uh, itself moved to the point of sale, there is no profit to be made. And as Kim Moody writes, this is something that Karl Marx understood. So Moody writes in his piece, Marx was clear that transportation workers who move commodities produce surplus value. Since commodities must change location both during production and to reach the market, he wrote, economically considered the spatial condition that bringing the product to the market belongs to the production process itself. In volume two of Capital, he concluded, the productive capital invested in this industry, transportation, thus adds value to the products transported, partly through the value carried over by the means of transport, partly through the value added by the work of transport. And today, time is everything. Instead of relying on storing items for a few weeks, companies increasingly rely on what's called just-in-time delivery systems, delivering a part or a product just in time when it's needed in the production process instead of relying on storage. After all, storage is dead time that adds no value or profits. And And in fact, today, many warehouse workers perform the final step in the manufacturing of the product. So though they are classified as service workers, they are actually a central part of industrial work. This process leaves companies vulnerable. One disruption in the logistics chain can throw off the whole operation. If one part of one product isn't delivered just in time, that can destroy a lot of profits. Whereas before, if you had the part in storage, it wouldn't be a problem. Now this can become a big problem. So far, for the most part, logistic workers have not realized or used this leverage. But production systems have gone so far in this direction, they can't easily change course. So this potential leverage will be here for a while. And we've seen glimpses of it, like in the 1990s, where strikes at General Motors plants in the U.S. disrupted production in other countries like Canada and Mexico. The geographic distribution of production is also returning to an older model that could potentially make it easier for industrial workers to exert power. In the last upsurge of labor power in the 1930s and 40s, large amounts of workers were concentrated in urban areas, which would facilitate easier communication and cohesion as a class. One of the developments that has made labor organizing more complicated is the geographic decentralization of production. Companies deliberately moved operations to the suburbs, not just to avoid unions, but to diffuse the potency of working class action. But the logistics revolution is bringing back centralization. Huge logistics hubs have been created that once again concentrate industrial workers in a limited area. Just to give some examples, Chicago's metropolitan area has about 150,000 logistics workers alone. The UPS Worldport Superhut in Louisville employs 55,000 workers. Altogether, logistics employs 3.2 million American workers. And increasingly, this is also a diverse workforce. Due to a host of historical factors, including, of course, over-discrimination, Manufacturing workers throughout the United States history have been disproportionately white and male. Black workers have been more concentrated in the public sector. But things are changing. In 1981, workers of color made up 15% of workers in production and transportation. Now they make up 40% of those workers. Capital has also reorganized itself in other ways that can make it vulnerable to working class activity. Capital has consolidated itself in a recent wave of mergers and acquisitions aimed at strengthening firms' core products. This wave is moving away from the previous wave of conglomerates. And the labor economist Charles uh, Crapo wrote and explained why conglomerates favor employers over unions, saying, 
the conglomerate employer is, by definition, a multi-industry enterprise. This results in a greater employer operating mobility than that of a union, whose bargaining structure and representation rights rarely cross industry lines. Greater financial leverage than that of a union whose members depend on a single business operation for their livelihood, and greater administrative range than a union whose decision-making options are limited to a single plant or industry. These administrative, financial, and mobility advantages enable the conglomerate to frustrate the collective bargaining process and impair the bargaining strength of the unions. So if a conglomerate faces a strike in one industry, they can still make profit in another. But with this move away from conglomerates, firms are more vulnerable to strike action in a single industry. And we see examples of consolidation and centralization all around us. By 2011, four meatpacking companies controlled 75% of production. One rail freight carrier employs 80% of that workforce. Four airlines control 80% of air passenger traffic. And in telecommunications, four major players control 90% of the market. On the one hand, this creates powerful corporate juggernauts like we see with Amazon. But on the other hand, it identifies clearer organizing targets with clearer vulnerabilities. Capital is consolidating itself along the lines that it did before the great wave of organizing and labor in the 1930s. So we should remember that, in fact, manufacturing is still a big part of our economy. It has just shifted more to logistics instead of the actual making of a product. The reorganization of capital and of workers has created vulnerabilities for employers and opportunities for workers. But of course, this is just potential. It takes class struggle to realize this potential. And of course, we should keep a comprehensive picture of the working class. Sectors other than logistics are, of course, vitally important. In the last decade, we've seen the most organizing among education and healthcare workers. There is no one sector that will be a silver bullet or deserves all of our attention. But let's just not forget that production remains central to the operation of capitalism, even in the United States in 2021. Just because we haven't yet seen the full power of the current industrial working class doesn't mean that it does not exist. And Jen and Max, curious what your thoughts are on that. Um, but the, the industrial working class lives just in a different form. I guess that's what I'll say. You you heard it here first, folks. Uh, keep your eye on logistics if you want to catch sight of the industrial working class. But uh, in all seriousness, Paul, I think that that was, as I was saying to you earlier, a pretty perfect complement to some of the themes that I was trying to get at. Um, I think that when people are overly deterministic about, you know, manufacturing is over or like, you know, uh, uh, I think one that we hear a lot actually is like, there are no more, or, you know, like the working class is like no, no longer white men, um, which, you know, to some extent is true, but of course the working class still does uh, encompass white men. And we're still concerned about those members of the working class as well. Um, And as you point out, logistics, uh, although it's kind of the new face of the industrial uh, sector is, uh, is, is much more diverse as well. Um, I, I think that this I, I just think that, you know, that's really well said that like the mm-hmm. industrial working class hasn't disappeared. It's just taken a new form uh, in what we're calling logistics um, and other sectors as well. Yeah, I mean, my first thought is I got to talk to you guys more often because I'm having a blast. But I mean, like, uh, <laughs> Likewise. Both, yeah. yeah, this <laughs> is the labor coup show, you know. Yeah, exactly. Labor coup, the new, we're taking over. Right. This is like um, the equivalent of Reagan and the traffic controllers. Like, <laughs> right. Bad joke. Too soon. Still too soon, but anyway. Too soon, right. Still too soon. Um, 
No, I mean, you know, just just very grateful for the conversation um, and and really I'm thinking a lot about both of the brilliant segments that y'all gave and how they connect to one another. I guess um, the first thing that I would be remiss if I didn't say is is I want to give a big shout out uh, to our boy Joe Allen, who I know is uh, is uh, worked with good Jacobin folks. Uh, I recently had Joe on uh, Working People bonus episode to talk about the Teamsters convention mm-hmm. in June. Uh, but this is a point that Joe makes uh, often, right? Is he says like, "Look, UPS is the largest private sector unionized workforce in the country, mm-hmm. and yet we kind of pretend like they're just not there." Like when we talk about, you know, who wither the working class? Who is the working class? Where where is the next revolutionary kind of agent? going to emerge and i i think that maybe that's like what listening to both of you has kind of made me think right is there is i think a sort of mm, not fatalism that's not the right word i'm trying to think about it, but maybe a determinism to use mm-hmm. to use jen's word right is that there's almost this kind of posture that we are forever put in when we think about what the working class is going to be who is it going to be uh, how are we slash they going to finally rise up uh, and take the control of the gears of this system and push us into the great beyond, so on and so forth. So we're, it, it's, it's a, it's again, it's a very kind of consumerist capitalist way of understanding it, right? We are giving, we are ceding the territory of, of the future to the kind of elite institutions that are going to craft it for us. So we're mm-hmm. in a sense waiting for someone else to create the conditions that we need to build the world that we, that we need now. Right. But it, when in fact there are, you know, workers everywhere, there, there, there are opportunities to organize everywhere. There are people in desperate need of overhauls in their own unions, right. Of, of building kind of worker power beyond, you know, their individual workplace of connecting with their neighbors in ways that they never had before. Right. We're playing so far behind the eight ball, and yet we're we're still looking ten yards ahead of us, like for for yeah. where we can seize on that opportunity. I'm like, look around you. It, like it, I, I say this all the time on the, on working people's, like no one has to do everything, but right. everyone can do something, right? And I guarantee you, look to your left, look to your right. There's an opportunity there to build the kind of working class solidarity that it's going to take, no matter what the workforce looks like. If we are going to actually build that worker power, if workers are actually going to be the agents of the change that we need to see in this world, there's a whole hell of a lot of work that still needs to be done uh, before we get from point A to point Z. But yet, you know, and we can't just expect that the capitalist class is going to like magically create some class of workers who's going to be perfectly constructed to realize that change, to step into that role. It takes grassroots works. It takes connecting with one another. It takes being there for one another, having each other's back, right? And and deprogramming all of that capitalist crap that so many of us still live with. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, Paul, you had mentioned in your segment briefly that uh, uh, a, a couple years ago, it seemed like everybody on the left was talking about the precariat, right? Or right. suddenly everybody wanted to talk about gig workers, freelancers, temps, contractors. And, you know, that is, of course, a very precarious uh, employment situation to be in, um, as we see, as we saw with, you know, California's Prop 22, the passage of Prop 22. Um, employers would love nothing better than to have, you know, uh, just huge disposable 
reserve army of temp workers or of, you know, precarious workers or of gig, work, gig workers at their disposal. Um, but something that you had pointed out was that rates of precarious work in the U.S. actually haven't risen that much. And I remember I, I once went to a talk a couple of years ago by, uh, I, I think he's a sociologist named Arnie Kalleberg, and he studies rates of precarious work in Europe and in the U.S. And something that he pointed out, which I'll never forget, is he was like, I think one reason why rates of precarious work in the U.S. are actually not as high as they are in Europe is because we have at-will at will employment in the U.S., which basically makes everybody a de facto precarious worker. I mean, when you can be fired at the drop of a hat for any reason or for no reason whatsoever, um, you know, even if you got the like W-2 form or whatever, like you're basically a hair away from being a precarious. I mean, that that is in and of itself a precarious situation. So just wanted to throw that out there, too. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's like all these jobs that we have considered now, like good, stable jobs, of course, at one point, we're not, you know, so mm -hmm. like the auto industry used to be extremely precarious, meatpacking, construction, you know, it, so it took organizing to make those jobs better. And so again, like we're creating all these jobs that are, you know, they're, they're just jobs, but they just suck because we are weak at this moment. Um, yeah. And I think, I mean, just what Max mentioned about UPS, I think that's something to keep our eye on because I mentioned this early, but you know, the last great successful national strike, private sector strike in this country was the UPS strike of 97. That happened where a reform movement, the Teamsters came to national power. And very soon in the National Teamsters Union, there's going to be an election where there is a reform slate running for power. And that's going to set up 2023 contract negotiations with UPS. So really something to keep our eye on. Um, that could be a major, major flashpoint. And I think, you know, I again, I, I hesitate to draw direct analogies, but, you know, I, I think some similar things could be happening to like the previous period just before the great wave of industrial unionism in the 1930s. I think it's, it takes a lot of experimentation and failing. But also what I noticed has happened and what happened in the 30s was first, workers were seeing the success and that was a huge bar breaking down of a barrier. You know, they're like, yeah. wow, the auto workers did a sit down strike and they won, you know, I'm in the rubber industry, but now I feel I can do the same. And I think if there is a successful confrontation with UPS in 2023, that could be a big signal to Amazon workers of like, you know, we, we want that. We want to do that. Um, again, it may not the opposite the of the Patco strike. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Um, but, you know, I mean, what I hope is that, yes, I mean, we saw the Amazon, uh, you know, really, really bad defeat. And we should acknowledge that it's a defeat. But we, maybe we're in that period of like where we're, we're kind of building up some experience confronting these companies. Um, and, you know, again, there, there are vulnerabilities. I remember, you know, people who work at Labor Notes, which is a great labor publication um, and kind of labor center. You know, they were writing about just in time back in the, the 90s and they were kind mm -hmm. of they said at the time they were like they were kind of surprised employers are doing this because it leaves them so vulnerable. Yeah. But again, so far, you know, that hasn't been uh, exploited yet, but it doesn't mean that it can't sometime in, in the future. So I want to I wanted to throw one thing in the pot here because it's um it links back to a, a, a conversation that I had on working people, but we posted the full video version of it at the real news. So I got to interview the great Richard Wolf, right? We all know we, we love, we love Papa Wolf. I could listen to him. Tell me <laughs> bedtime stories in that New York growl, like every night. Right. But I mean, he's a brilliant, brilliant man. And we, we talked about this, like 
uh, what is the working class going to be? How has the constitution of the working class changed since World War II? Who is in it, right? You know, what kind of work are they doing? And it was a very enlightening kind of conversation for me. And I, I would I would add it as like a footnote to this conversation, right? Because I think that one of the things that I try to do on working people, and this is, I haven't gotten a lot right, you know, with the show from the beginning, but I think this was one of the things that I got right in the beginning, right? Before the, like in the beginning, my intros are like 20 minutes long. They were long winded. They were terrible. The episodes were like almost three hours long. So I got better at understanding what listeners would actually listen to as time wore on. But one of the goals that I really had from the get go was I did not want to use any part of the, any episode to define what the working class is like for listeners. I didn't want to give them a working definition. I wanted a sort of understanding of what, of who the working class is and what it means to live and be in the working class. I wanted that definition to emerge out of all these different stories uh, from individuals talking about their lives, talking about their experiences, both in and outside of work, right? Because I think there is also a kind of deterministic trap that we can fall into when we think about the working class like solely in terms of the type of labor that we perform right or the or the sort of arenas in which we perform that labor right and that leads to kind of a lot of this sort of definitional nitpicking right where people are always pointing at each other like the Spider-Man meme saying like you're not working class you're not working class you're professional managerial class you're whatever it's like Mother, like, I don't know how much I can swear on this, but, you know, like... You, all you want. Okay. It's like, motherfucker, like, we're <laughs> almost all, like, in the vast class of what Re of what Richard Wolf calls the order takers, right? Mm -hmm. Are you determining, you know, like, how society is shaped? No, yeah. neither am I, right? I mean, so there, there are, in fact, a lot of, you know, more robust ways that we can kind of look at this. Obviously, there are going to be um, real and tangible and, and kind of, you know, hard to overcome differences between white collar workers, blue collar workers, you know, care workers, loggers in Maine, right? It's not going to be easy. It was never going to be easy. If it was easy, we would have done it already, right? I mean, like, but, you know, the, I think that one of the things that it would really behoove us to, to think about, right, is what precariousness, right? What working classness like means in terms of a mode of living, a way that we are allowed to exist in this world, the position that we have, you know, in relationship to the levers of power that determine where the jobs are, you know, like where government money goes, like how much of it is going to a 20 year war where we got our asses kicked, right? There are so many of those decisions that are made above our heads that direct the vast resources of our society that we have no say over, right? That is part of what it means to be in the order taking class. It means mm -hmm. that you are not in charge, right? It means that you are not the one at the helm. Your, your needs are not the ones that are being prioritized when these decisions are being made, right? And so I think that when I think about precariousness, this is where I circle back to the actual point, is like the precariousness of Paul makes a, a, an absolutely invaluable point about how, you know, we are, in fact, talking about precariousness probably in the wrong way. What I think more and more people identify with, right, is the precariousness of a future, right, in which they can live comfortably, right? The precariousness of one's economic position. I think that that's something even what we would call the professional managerial class feels deep in their bones, especially after 2007, right? Yeah. They saw, so many people saw how close to the cliff they actually were. 
the cliff that my family fell off, right? The cliff that millions of others fell off. They saw how there was no one really there to help them, right? And they see the kind of struggle of people who are working more hours than we ever have. Workers in the U.S. are more productive than we've ever been. And yet our purchasing power, our ability to kind of have, you know, like the means to go on vacation, to, you know, do a side project, right? To send our kids to college, right? That is what has been sapped away. We, 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 there may still be those types of jobs available, but the power of our dollar, the, the comfort of knowing that um, we'll be okay if like we face an unexpected expense, right? The minimum wage has stayed where it is, at, where it's at for the longest amount of time in the United States history. That is what precariousness really means is this downward squeeze where people are not allowed to have any sort of ability to push forward and, and determine what they want to do with their lives. Instead, we are living in that sort of flexible like position, that meat grinder that Alan Greenspan had wet dreams about, right? I mean, that is like, we are living in the world that Reagan created, that our parents bought into the dream of that world. We have seen that it doesn't work. What we need to realize is that this was a social experiment that has proven its failure to us. We don't have to keep going down this road. We don't have to keep believing in these fictions because we feel in our bones the precariousness of the existence that it affords us. And we know that that is not enough. It's not enough for us, our families, our coworkers, our neighbors, and it doesn't have to be this way. And I want to add one more point about just, um, you know, what identifies as, as working class and, I think what some people don't realize is that's not fixed. So even just taking mm -hmm. nursing for a long time, it was hard to organize nurses because they very much, a lot of them very much uh, felt, you know, we're professionals, we're not workers. But as conditions have deteriorated, more and more are realizing that they are workers and that they yeah. do need a union. I think you could say similar to teachers. Now, teachers have been organized for a while, but, you know, maybe before it was more like, well, they're they're middle class. But I think... In most, especially urban school districts, like the conditions and the pay are so bad that actually, I mean, you know, take Philadelphia, for example, a public transit operator makes way more than a public school teacher. Um, you know, so. Paul, are you hinting at a career change? I, yeah, no, I'm no. just kidding. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Um, you know, and of course, public transit operators deserve to get uh, paid yeah, a lot. But, you know, I think someone might assume, oh, well, if you're teaching like you're in a comfy middle class kind of lifestyle and, you know, more and more, that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Well, I, I want to ask you guys uh, two questions, actually. Um, so for anybody who's watching and, and for our special guest, Max, uh, we usually do a segment at the end of the show called Labor Paul, where Paul Prescott, this guy right here, takes audience questions that are related to labor. Um, I think that we have a few probably for the future, uh, but I actually have two questions today that uh, I think bear on what we've been discussing for the last you know hour and a half. Um, so I want to throw it to not just Paul, but to... Our guest Max, Labor, Labor Max, Max, for the Labor next Max. 15 minutes. <laughs> so my first question for you guys is, we've been talking a lot about unions and organized labor, um, but, you know, obviously over the last, over the, over the same time period that organized labor has been on the decline, we've seen the rise of sort of what, I think what some people used to call alt-labor institutions or just, you know, non-union worker advocacy groups. So I'm thinking here of things like the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, uh, even groups like United for Respect, which of course is trying to, you know, organize uh, Walmart workers. Um, I, I don't think that they're trying to unionize them. I think that they're just trying to, you know, improve their working conditions and improve 
improve their wages. So this is all a way of saying, you know, what what do you guys think that these worker centers and other non-union worker advocacy groups are going to play in the coming years? Right, I'll, I'll start, Max, and feel free to chime in. Um, but, you know, often these kinds of organizations spring up in labor sectors where either traditional unions cannot or do not organize those workers. So, for example, the National Labor Relations Act was written in a way so that it did not apply to domestic workers. So they did not have the same rights and abilities to organize themselves into a union. So the Domestic Workers Alliance is an advocacy organization those workers can use in lieu of a union. And other organizations are actually sponsored by unions and serve as like organizing committees before the union has enough strength to represent those workers. So United for Respect is sponsored by uh, United Food and Commercial Workers. And the hope is that this organization can build enough strength so that eventually the union can win representation of Walmart workers. So I think these organizations could play an important role in laying the groundwork for another labor upsurge down the road. Especially when it comes to these corporate giants, it's going to take a lot of experimenting and trying and failing before there is success. And a base of workers with experience needs to be built up over time. And in cases like the Domestic Workers Alliance, if labor law isn't going to change to include those workers, then these kinds of organizations are needed to make any kind of gains. So even if they can't bargain in this traditional way, they can lobby for legislation that might improve conditions. But I think, you know, the big question is, do these organizations have enough power to substantially improve conditions over the long term? And it's just a lot harder without the kind of bargaining power a traditional union has. So when it comes to stimulating another labor upsurge, these things are hard to predict. So it may be that the next upsurge happens outside of the confines of these existing organizations or even existing unions. So I guess overall, I'd say that these organizations have an important role to play. But I don't think it would be fair or wise to expect that these groups can solve the problems that unions have or in themselves be the alternative to the traditional labor movement that's in crisis. Um, and But Max, I'm curious your thoughts on this. I mean, I think that that certainly tracks with with kind of what I would say. Um, the first thing that I would do is give a shout out to the brilliant labor scholar, Rebecca Given, who uh, always makes this point. She says, you don't have to be certified as a union to act like one. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, like when workers are organizing collectively to assert uh, their wants and needs as priorities, um, they are in effect acting as a union. Right. And so I think that that's that's kind of the, the preface that I would give to everything else that I would say. The other thing that this makes me think about, right, is again, I, I, I always, I'm human, right? I think about this in, through the lens of my own life, right? I think about where I might have thought differently or acted differently if I had some labor consciousness for the first half of my life or even more than that, right? When I was, when I was working those 12 hour days at, at these warehouses, right? I, all of us felt imperially, infinitely alone, right? To the point where they managed, and that was by design, right? I, I, I've written about this uh, for Protein Magazine, uh, if anyone wants to know more about that job. But like the thing, one of the things that I'll always remember is that even for those of us temps who had been there for like months, right? Every day we went through the same routine. We would work 12 hours from five to five, sometimes five in the morning to seven or eight at night. You'd be drenched in sweat. Night shift was coming on. They would line us up 
in the middle of the warehouse and the manager would walk down. I can still hear their, their kind of boots on the concrete floor as they were walking down the line and they would point to which one of us they wanted to come back the next day. Every day. You never got, you never got to a safe position. Right, because you were a temp, right? And and just feeling that humiliation, feeling that fear of shit, I screwed up that one time today. I I didn't make my quota, right? I I messed up one shipment. Is that going to mean that now suddenly I'm going to have to go back to the temp agency and figure out how I'm going to pay for food, right? That 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 is a form of discipline, right? It's it's a way of mentally and psychologically and emotionally manipulating workers into believing that we are as disposable as this system treats us, you know, like, and, and, and it doesn't, we, we shouldn't feel that way, but that is what working in these conditions makes us feel. My point being is that at no point when I worked there, did I ever feel like someone else had my back that I felt like I had someone to complain to the temp agency. Wasn't going to care. If I complained, they'd say the most that they would do is say, all right, we'll assign you to a different warehouse. That's it. Right. But there was no one there to really advocate for me. I didn't feel like I could do much advocating for my coworkers or anything like that. I had no labor consciousness. That is again, to bring us all back to Alan Greenspan's ghoulish ass. That is the kind of flexibility, the flexible position that the market wants me to be in. Right. And I think that this is actually a, a taken for granted aspect of the way that we work in this country. I remember talking to a worker at Burgerville in Portland about this in like two seasons ago and working people. We said like, you know, all those quote unquote starter jobs that we get in high school, right? The fast food jobs, the retail jobs. We know that in fact, these are not just like high school starter jobs. A lot of people make their living in these jobs, but what they almost serve as is like a, it's a school. It's a capitalist school of indoctrination where you are learned. Uh, you know, you, you, you learn and develop this understanding of what it means to be, uh, you know, at the bottom of the of the ladder. Right. You you are schooled in what it means to be uh, a worker who has no real say over their working conditions. You take what the boss gives you. Um, and if it gets to be too much, you just leave. Right. And that's where I kind of wanted to tie this all together. Right. Is like I think that one thing that we all really need to sit with is that we are actually living through one of the great labor actions of our generation, where more and more people came out of the pandemic um, saying, we're not going to work for seven twenty-five an hour anymore with like uh, schedules that change every day and every week with no benefits, yada, yada, yada. People realized they confronted uh, our own mortality with this kind of mass death experience of COVID-19. And now more and more workers, whether they be in the coal mines in Alabama or at Frito-Lay in Topeka, Kansas, right? Or at Nabisco, right? More workers are saying, um, you know, there's more to life than this. I don't want to be treated like a robot and just work day in, day out and have nothing left to give, right? I want to actually live the life that I want to live. And people are saying, no, they're refusing, they're quitting, but then they have nowhere else to go, right? Mm -hmm. David's story of the Valley Labor Report made this great point on my show as well. He said, like, I feel like it was a missed moment because people had that urge to resist, but they did not have the kind of institutions or infrastructure or community to fall back on to decide what to do with that. We just did what Alan Greenspan wants us to do, which is leave and find another job that is more amenable to us. And so if worker centers and these types of organization can at least provide 
working people in America with something that most of us have never had before, which is a feeling that we can have and do more in the workplace than just leave, then that is significant. So I think my next question actually follows perfectly from that. And this is the question. What's a strike? Um, this is not a trick question and it's not a joke. Um, I'll, I'll just begin by saying, um, when I, when I think about a strike, truth be told, I tend to default to what I think is a pretty narrow, or you might even say conservative definition where I say, you know, a strike is a work stoppage at the point of production. But I think, you know, perhaps in tandem with some of these worker centers and alt labor groups that have been uh, making some noise over the last couple of decades, I think we've also seen the definition of a strike sort of expand and contract at times. And what I'm talking about is a few years ago, you know, um, uh, socialist feminists organized a women's strike. uh, And that was, you know, kind of a rally and a demonstration for one day uh, to kind of call attention to the unwaged work that women do, um, you know, both in their jobs and in the home and so forth. Um, I know that at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests uh, over this past year, uh, there were other, you know, worker advocacy groups or, you know, um, activist groups that called for a kind of day of action, uh, a, you know, one day strike in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and also, again, to call attention to sort of police brutality and also the, you know, the contributions that Black workers make, uh, quite honestly. So I, I guess the question, but, you know, sometimes I think about, you know, these these uh, kinds of moments and I'm like, well, like, is this really a strike? Like, should we should we count this as a strike? My question to you guys is, what is a strike, first of all, of course, as I already asked, to does, does it matter? Does it matter what we call a strike? Is it a good thing to expand the definition of a strike to include kind of these other sort of non-traditional labor actions as well? I'll, I'll take my crack at it. Um, I guess labor, labor Paul should, should know what a strike is. Um, I guess how I would define it is, you know, when the majority, if not all workers at a given workplace or company refuse to work in pursuit of specific demands. So to me, that means a publicity event is not a strike. A social media call to action isn't a strike or a refusal to use social media isn't a strike. And it's not a strike if only a few workers participate or a few workers don't show up to work. So, you know, of course, the point of a strike is to hit a company where it hurts the most by preventing their ability to make profits. And so in the case of the public sector, like teaching or sanitation, a strike might not be about profits per se, but about disrupting the functioning of society enough to demonstrate how important those workers are to society. So really, it's the ultimate tool leverage workers have. And though, of course, like we saw with PACO, strikes are not guaranteed to be successful Uh, And one thing we should talk about, actually, is the real purpose of picket lines. Um, Picket lines are not just so workers can march around with signs. Um, The aim of them, at least originally, was to physically prevent the company from bringing in the replacement workers, or at least make it as difficult as possible. Today, I think picket lines are often kind of just symbolic affairs that don't really affect the ability of the employer to bring in replacements. Part of this, I think, is because of uh, very repressive labor law. But picket lines used to be very confrontational and could actually prevent a company from using workers. And I think a great example is we have a video clip from a steel strike in 1937. When a strike, it hurts. And here is the Battle of Monroe, Michigan, a clash between strikers and the special deputies. 500 men wanted to go back to work for the Bethlehem Steel Company, but they had to run the gauntlet of pickets and the pickets were heavy handed. (laughs) 
Look out there, someone's being killed. Oh, it's only a cameraman. Baseball bats, knotted rubber and iron pipes were all brought in to play their part in persuading blacklegs that a strike is serious. Barricades were put up at a hundred cars filled with men who wanted to work made a dash through the picket lines. That's a strike in America. So, to be clear, I'm not saying that I hope more strikes turn violent like that, but we shouldn't forget what the actual point of a strike is, um, and it's different to me than a rally or a mass demonstration. Um, but, Max, also curious your thoughts. And I'm just uh, thinking about that that shade get, thrown at the cameraman. I know. I just didn't realize <laughs> that guy. when I first saw it, but you got to love that old-timey voice. Perfect. <laughs> oh, don't mind him. It's just a pin the camera right. boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, it's it's. I'm thinking a lot about uh, something that uh, Robert Pauly, the then president, newly elected president of PATCO, said uh, right before the kind of fated PATCO strike in 1981 that we discussed uh, earlier in this episode. As we know, it was unsuccessful. Reagan broke it, fired over 11,000 workers, banned them from working in the federal government ever again, and it was a massive blow to the labor movement. But Pauly said something, um, you know, to the members that, that really sticks with me, right? It would kind of live in infamy after we know what happened with the strike. But what he said is the only illegal strike is an unsuccessful one, right? And, you know, I think that, you know, there, there is a truth to that, right? I mean, there is a truth to that that goes back to what um, both of y'all were saying, right? It's um, it does matter to have these definitions, I think, right? Especially um, when we see from things like Petco um, the dire consequences that can be had um, when we don't have the power uh, and when we don't approach these things as strategically as we need to. Right. When we lose. Right. When we lose, we lose hard and we lose a lot. Right. That's exactly what happened with the Patco strikers. Right. And so I think that it is important to kind of insist on definitions that we can actually work with and think with and plan around. Otherwise, you know, we get kind of a lot of this silliness of people calling a general strike every two seconds without knowing how the hell they're actually going to do it without thinking about the danger that they're going to be putting themselves and their coworkers in if they don't actually plan uh, to execute it with that kind of power that they're going to need to. But I, I think that there's a long way of saying that I more or less agree with you both that, you know, it, it, it is a specific kind of action that requires um, a collective ability to exert power on production, right? To to mm-hmm. and to take away, right? To exert that power by taking away something that the owning class needs in order to produce and in order to gain the profit that it lives by. Right. And so I think then maybe the question I would pose to folks watching that could maybe in fact expand our definition of a strike a little more is 
you know, one of, I think, the, the realities that it's taken us a long time to catch up to in the 21st century, right, is, again, we're not the kind of consumers approaching a world that is waiting for us to discern, like, what what services we want to buy, you know, what house we want to buy, what products we want to buy, yada, 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 right? More than anything, we are the products, right? You know, we are we are these kind of bodies that are being sapped of labor and and surplus value left and right, right? Whether that is the data that we are producing on our damn phones, right? You know, whether like all there's so many ways that our just basic capacities for living life have been monetized and that we are in fact performing labor for a system that makes money off of us in ways that we still don't really see, right? We still don't see ourselves as the laborers in this kind of grossly technologized, financialized system. And so what does it mean to withhold, right, that surplus value? What does it mean to withhold that stuff, you know, that we are producing even outside of our workplace for the entities that are making money off of us, right? I think that that's a very open-ended kind of question, but it's one that when you think about what makes a strike um, can kind of help you understand, right, like how and in fact you are being, uh, your labor is being used uh, to produce certain results all across uh, the board. So how can you withhold that? How can you collectively withhold it uh, to the point where you actually affect the process of production itself? I think you, you start to answer those questions, maybe you'll get a closer definition of what a strike actually is. Viewers, uh, feel free to weigh in in the chat or the comments. Uh, I think that is a really good and provocative kind of question to kind of end the show on. Uh, Max, you've been super generous with your time. We threw you into the deep end, (laughs) asking you to go first and give us the definitive history of the PATCO strike in 1981 and Reagan breaking it. You pulled it off with flying colors. We've loved having you on the show. Uh, We hope to get you back. You're now in the cult. Yeah. You are also Labor Max. Uh, and I, I, I also, before we let you go, um, you know, we've talked about the Real News Network and Working People podcast. Everybody who's watching, uh, you know, if, if you're not familiar with those uh, uh, media ventures, definitely check them out. Uh, they're both amazing. Max, is there anything else you want to plug? You get the last word. Oh, man. Well, you know, first, let me gush one more time and say thank you both so much for having me on. Thank you for the incredible work that you do. Shout out to Kale behind the scenes and everyone else working on it. He's just a cameraman. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> so mean. Here he so is. mean. <laughs> quiet, quiet, you. <laughs> um, you know, shout out to everyone working on this. Again, you know, I genuinely mean it when I say that, you know, we've got a long way to go to collectively deprogram ourselves to help people realize that there are alternatives to this hellish system. And it's an honor to be kind of in that struggle to provide, you know, those alternatives to lift up the voices of those who are working towards those alternatives along with you guys. So thank you so much for having me on and keep up all the amazing work. And yeah, for, I guess, for folks watching, um, if you want to listen to Working People, where I yeah, interview workers about their lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles, we also talk about 
know, a lot of other labor and worker related issues on the show. Check us out there. Uh, please check out the Real News Network. Uh, become a monthly sustainer of our work. We really have an incredible team. I get to work with like legendary Black Panther and longtime political prisoner Eddie Conway, who produces a YouTube show about the victims and violence of the prison industrial complex. Lisa Snow McRae, Jessel Knorr, Stephen Graham, Stephen Janice and Taya Graham, Mark Steiner. It's an incredible group of people that I'm fortunate to work with. So check us out. I think we got a lot of stuff that you guys would like. I guess the last thing that I would plug is I actually do have a book coming out uh, later this year uh, with Orr Books, um, which is the book of uh, interviews with workers during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hmm. Most of them kind of conducted between January and March of this year. Um, Some of them have harrowingly kind of borne out the warnings that interviewees told me. Like I think uh, I interviewed Zenny. Triunfo Cortez uh, with the Nurses Union, who is herself a practicing nurse in California. We were talking in February and she was like, we are begging the CDC to not uh, like reverse this mask mandate because we are the ones in the hospitals who are going to be experiencing the fallout. Here we are months later and they were right. Right. I mean, I got to interview uh, Nick, a grave digger in New Jersey, uh, Willie, a gig worker in Texas. Uh, it was just an incredible project that I'm honored to be putting out into the world later this year. So uh, if you want to check that out, it should be out with or books, uh, hopefully by December. Do you have a title yet? So the title is The the Work of Living, uh, Working People Talk About Their Lives in the Year the World Broke. So you mentioned Studs Terkel. It's kind of a, a gesture to Studs. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, everybody, you hear, you heard it here. Check out Max's book. Check out The Real News Network and Working People Podcast. And thanks so much for tuning in tonight. And we will see you all next time. Good night. Good night.